time that we're able to spend in Bible study, continuing to work our way throughout the book of Ephesians. We're almost at the end of this amazing letter that Paul writes to the church at Ephesus. Tonight we're ready for Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 through 9. If you have your Bibles and you'd like to turn there with me, Ephesians chapter 6, and together we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 9. Over the last few weeks, from Ephesians 5 verse 22 to the end of our text tonight, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 9, we've been looking at a section of Scripture that people oftentimes label as household codes. This is what God wants the household to look like, especially within the first century context, the context that Paul is addressing. If you go over to 1 Peter chapter 2 and 3, you find another list of household codes. Codes. If you go to Colossians chapter 3, you find something very similar. If you think back a couple of weeks ago, we spent some time in the last section of Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33, talking about the relationship that should exist between a husband and his wife. Last week, we talked about God's desire for the relationship that exists between a parent and a child. Tonight, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5-9, through 9, talking about God's desire in the first century world for the relationship that existed between a bondservant and his master. Masters and their slaves. Before we get into that section of Scripture, I think that it would be helpful and I think that it would be fruitful for us to spend a little bit of time talking about first century slavery. Whenever we hear the word slavery, rightfully so, we automatically think about what took place in 16th, 17th, 18th century America. We think about the slavery that existed within our nation. When you look at the slavery that existed during the time of the New Testament, while there were certainly some similarities, there were also some key differences. So in order to understand the context of the relationship that Paul is talking about in this section of Scripture, I think it's good for us to bear out not only the similarities, but also the differences that exist between the two entities. So when we look at first century slavery, perhaps the first thing that we need to mention, and I think this is something that is true of every kind of slavery, regardless of where it was or when it was, slaves were viewed as another person's property, And as a result of that, they had no rights. That was true 200 years ago in America. That was true 2,000 years ago during the time that Paul wrote this letter in Ephesians chapter 6. Slaves were at the bottom of the social totem pole. They belonged to another person. They had no rights for themselves. So while that is a very key similarity, and while that's a very important similarity, there are also some key differences. For instance, in the first century world, particularly the Roman Empire, slavery was very, very popular. Some sources claim that about one-fifth of the entire population of Rome were slaves. If you compare that with America, 16th, 17th, 18th century America, it's just a little bit different from that. Slavery was not as popular from the research that I did. At its very peak in America, slavery only accounted for one-sixth of the population. So at the very most, slavery in America did not amount to as much as it was 
in the Bible times. During the time that the New Testament was being written, slavery was very popular, and that's why Paul is addressing it. I think it's important for us to point out on the front end of this, we, we know that slavery is a very touchy subject, and that's a very touchy word, especially in the world that we're living in right now. In this passage of Scripture, Paul is not condoning slavery. Paul is not saying that slavery is a good thing. This was a part of his culture. It was popular in his culture. It was a part of the socioeconomics of his culture. So what does he do? He allows the gospel to speak into it. He allows the gospel to talk about what that relationship is supposed to look like. He's not saying it's a good relationship, but if this relationship is going to be so prevalent in the culture, here are the guidelines. Here's what God desires for it. Number three, a pretty key similarity between the two is that slavery in the New Testament time resulted from a number of different things. Slavery in America was the result of race. It was the result of skin color. That's why you were a slave where you came from. In the New Testament, it wasn't that way at all. Everett Ferguson in his book, Backgrounds of Early Christianity, which by the way is a very good resource on this, a brother in Christ, he says the condition of slavery might result from war, Piracy, exposure of a child, if you leave your child out to the elements, if you don't want it and you just leave it out, chances are it's going to be adopted in and as a slave. Sell of a child or self to pay debts. If I owed you a debt, I could sell myself to you and work for you as your slave until I paid off that debt. He continues, condemnation in the law courts, if I do something wrong, that could be my sentence to become a slave or birth to a slave mother. So while slavery in America was based on race and it was based on skin color, it wasn't that way in the first century world. In the first century world, it was based on a number of different things. You could become a slave in a number of different ways. In other words, it was not racially motivated. Number next, slaves would receive education in the first century world and training in specialized skills. As you more than likely know, that was very rare 200 years ago in America for slaves to receive any kind of education or to be trained in any kind of skill set. Slaves in the first century were. Masters thought it was very important for their slaves to be able to read and write. They thought it was very important for their slaves to be able to have some kind of skill. And perhaps one of the reasons for that is that in the first century world, slaves could be set free. And actually, we could maybe raise that up just a little bit to say that it was expected that slaves were going to be set free. Whenever a slave worked for a master, they would earn money. And even though that money would stay in the hands of the master, they could work to the point, they could accrue enough money where they could buy their own freedom. And that's what slave oftentimes did. They would work for a number of years. They would accrue a certain sum of money. They would purchase their own freedom. And then oftentimes, as, as they were set free, the slave owner would continue to take care of them. As they were thrown out into the world, the, the, the a master would continue to provide resources for them, protection for them, financial support for them, like a benefactor kind of relationship. So what we see is that slavery... And the first century world was very different from what we see in 17th through 19th century America. While there were certainly some similarities, there were also some very key differences. Differences that we need to be aware of. If we approach Ephesians 6 verses 5 through 9 with American slavery in our minds, we're going to walk away with the wrong picture. 
So I think setting this context in place before we dive into the text is a very important thing to do. Now I have to be honest with you, as I walked through the text and as I prepared this lesson over the last week, it was really difficult for me to think about ways to apply this to our lives. Because these kind of relationships that Paul talks about here, the bondservant-master relationship of the first century, does not exist in our world in western Kentucky today. There's really no parallel. We have our rights. We don't belong to another person. We belong to ourselves. We have freedoms in the time that we're living in, in the country that we're living in. So I want to be very clear on the fact that there is no no very close parallel between what we're talking about in Ephesians 6, the relationship that exists there, and the relationships that we experience on a daily basis. What I think we can do, though, is walk through this passage of Scripture and pull out principles that have to do with working. That's the title of our lesson tonight. God's desire for working. What kind of worker does God want me to be? I think that we can draw out principles from Ephesians 6 verses 5-9 through 9 from the bondservant-master relationship to talk about the employee-employer relationship that we're familiar with. So I want to be very clear and I want you to understand that this is not an exact parallel But what we are doing is pulling principles from this section of Scripture and inviting them into our setting in 21st century America. So let's start with Ephesians chapter 6, looking at verses 5 through 8. What does Paul have to say to Christian bondservants? Just like he addressed wives back in Ephesians 5 and verse 22, just like he addressed husbands in chapter 5 and verse 25, just like he addressed children, chapter 6 and verse 1, and fathers in chapter 6 and verse 4, he addresses bondservants, not just bondservants, but Christian bondservants, slaves who have submitted their lives to Jesus. What does Paul have to say to them? What did God desire of Christian bondservants in this relationship in the first century? How were they supposed to interact with their masters? Paul lists a few different things. First, he says that they are to respond to their masters with obedience in verse 5. Bondservants, literally slaves, servants, obey your earthly masters. Notice that word earthly. That's kind of it that Paul draws a distinction. And we're going to see that throughout this entire text. That these bondservants were certainly serving earthly masters, but they also had a heavenly master in heaven that they were to submit themselves to. And so Paul says when it comes to your earthly master, the one who is in authority over you here on earth, you need to obey him. Do what he says. There's no back talk. There's no second guessing. And there's certainly no disobedience if you're going to be, in this time, the Christian bondservant that God wants you to be. As long as what your earthly master says does not contradict what your heavenly master says, Paul says you are to obey him. You do what he says. Now what does that obedience look like? How were bondservants to obey their masters back in this time? Well, the second idea as we continue reading is that bondservants were to give their masters respect. The two words that Paul uses to describe that in verse number 5 is fear and trembling. In that, Paul is not saying that bondservants should be terrified of their masters. 
Paul is not saying that they should be so scared whenever their masters come around. That's not the message. When you look specifically at that word fear, drop back for just a second to Ephesians 5 and verse 21. Paul uses the same word to talk about our relationships with one another. He says submitting to one another out of what? Different translations do it differently. Reverence, respect, fear for Christ. If you go to Ephesians 5 and verse 33, let the wife see that she what? Respects, reveres, fears her husband. So just like we submit to one another out of fear for Christ, just like a, a wife is to respect and fear her husband, we find here that bondservants are to fear and respect their masters. There should be no disrespect. Instead, is it, it is all to be about respect. Number three, Christian bondservants are to serve their masters, Paul says, with sincere hearts in verse number five. They're not to have any ulterior motives. They're not to serve their masters with a heart that's filled with scheming or a heart that's filled with deceit. They are to serve their masters in sincerity. They are to serve their masters with hearts of purity. Number four, Christian bondservants are to serve their masters out of goodwill with a positive attitude, with an optimistic outlook. Christian bondservants, Paul expected them in the first century world to work for the benefit of their Master. Do all that you can to benefit your Master. Do all that you can to help Him and to serve Him. And do it not with a negative attitude, but with a positive attitude. Not with a pessimistic attitude, but with an optimistic attitude. Number five, and I think really this fifth point is the main idea that Paul wants Christian bondservants to hear. That they were to serve their masters out of a spiritual motivation. I th we'll touch on this in our lives in just a second. But it might have been very tempting for Christian bondservants to draw a line and to say, here's what I do as a servant to an earthly master, and here's what I do as a servant to a heavenly master. Here's what I do as a slave to this person, and here's what I do as a slave to Jesus, and those two things are separated from one another. I'm drawing a line between the two. Those two are distinct from one another. Paul says it's time to erase that line. It's time for those things to be blended. He says in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 5, Obey your earthly masters. How? At the end of the verse, as you would Christ. Obey your earthly master just like you obey your heavenly master. Submit yourself to them. Be dedicated to them just like you are dedicated to Jesus. In verse number 6, he says, don't serve them by way of eye service. Paul's, it, many people think that Paul's the one who coined that term, eye service, in Greek. In other words, don't serve them just when the master's looking. And when the master turns his head, you're not going to serve them anymore and you're going to slack off your work. He says that's not how you should serve them. That's not the kind of motivation that you should have. Don't be motivated just when the master is watching. And then he says in verse 6, don't be people pleasers. Don't serve your master in order to just please your earthly master. He says instead, work, serve as a bondservant of Jesus. It's not about just when my master is watching. It's not just about bringing a smile to my earthly master's face, but it's about bringing a smile to my heavenly master's face. Being the person who he wants me to be. Being a Christian not just on Sunday, but throughout the rest of the week, Monday through Saturday. 
He says, whenever you do that, in verse 7, when you render service with good will, you are doing God's will. That's what God wants. That's what God expected from Christian bondservants. And then finally, number 6, he says that they are to serve, in verse number 8, with hope. Can you imagine how discouraging this would have been sometimes? We'll touch on this just a little bit more in verse number 9, but it wasn't uncommon in the first century world for masters, especially pagan masters, to beat their slaves to treat their slaves harshly, to intimidate and threaten their slaves? Can you imagine if if you're a Christian bondservant and you're serving under a pagan master and they're treating you terribly and they're beating you and they're threatening you and intimidating you? Can you imagine how discouraging that would be? Paul says you have to hold on to your hope. He says regardless of how they treat you, you continue to do good. You continue to do what's right knowing that the Lord is going to repay you from that. Knowing that you'll be able to experience tremendous blessing from God not just in this life, but also in the life that's coming. So the question is, how can we take that and invite that into our lives? How can we take those principles and apply them to our week, to our lives? Well, instead of talking about Christian bondservants, again, this isn't an exact parallel, but for just a second, let's talk about Christian employees. What kind of employee does God want you to be as a Christian? How does God want you to serve your employer? How does God want you to work for the organization, the business that you're a part of? What does God desire for your work as an employee? Well, let's walk back through these principles and think about them for just a second. Number one, God wants Christian employees to be obedient. As long as what your boss or organization tells you to do isn't in contradiction to what God tells you to do, you're supposed to do it. There's no backtalking, no second guessing, no disobedience. When your boss, when your organization tells you to do something and it doesn't contradict what God has told you to do in His Word, you are to do it. You are to obey the voice of the One who is in authority over you. Number two, God wants Christian employees to be respectful. Whether you're talking about your boss behind their back or whether you're talking to your boss to their face, you are to treat them with great respect. Paul uses the terms fear and trembling. You are to have a reverence for them because of the position that they are in. It's not about disrespect. It's about respect. Number three, Christian employees are to have sincere hearts. When you think about your workplace, when you think about your employer, you shouldn't have a heart that's full of scheming or deceit. You shouldn't serve them with ulterior motives. Instead, you should have a heart that's filled with sincerity. A heart that's filled with purity. Where in this work, I'm going to do the best that I can and I'm always going to do what is right. Number four, Christian employees are to work with a good will. A positive attitude. An optimistic outlook. I know that can be maybe difficult sometimes, but that's what Paul talks about in this text. Do all that you can to benefit the business that you're a part of. Do all that you can to benefit your employer. Do all that you can to help them and to serve them. And don't do it with a negative attitude where you're dragging around. Do it with a positive attitude. This is not about pessimism, but this is about optimism in verse number 7. And then I, I think really this is the key point. Christian employees are to interact with their bosses and businesses with a spiritual 
motivation. Just like we said a minute ago, sometimes we compartmentalize our lives where this is what I do at work and this is what I do at church. This is what I do as a Christian and this is what I do as an employee. And I draw a line between those two things. He says it's time to erase that line. Here's what I do at work and here's what I do at church. It's time to take those two things and blend them together. What you do Monday through Friday or Monday through Saturday, whatever days you work, should be motivated by what you do on Sunday. Obey them. Just like you obey Jesus. Be dedicated to them. Just like you're dedicated to Jesus. Don't just work motivated by eye service. Oh, the boss is looking. I better work now. And when he turns his head, I'm not going to work anymore. Don't be motivated as a people pleaser. You don't just want to bring a smile to your boss's face, to the business's face, but you want to bring a smile to Jesus' face. You're not just an employee of the business that you're a part of. You have dedicated your life to Jesus. And if you've dedicated your life to Jesus, that should impact every single area of your life. It's a spiritual motivation. Martin Luther said it this way. I think that he illustrated this really well. He said, The maid who sweeps her kitchen is doing the will of God just as much as the monk who prays. Not because she may sing a Christian hymn as she sweeps, but because God loves clean floors. The Christian shoemaker does his Christian duty not by putting little crosses on the shoes, but by making good shoes because God is interested in good craftsmanship. What is Martin Luther saying? He's saying that when we go to work, we shouldn't just be motivated by a paycheck. We shouldn't just be motivated by a daily routine. But it's something that should go much deeper. That when we go to work, we work hard. We work with sincerity. We have positive attitudes. Why? Because I'm spiritually motivated. What I do at work is motivated by who I am as a follower of Jesus. And then number six, Paul says that Christian employees should respond to their businesses and bosses with hope. Sometimes it can be discouraging. Sometimes you're going to be disrespected. And sometimes you're going to be discouraged, especially by those who are in authority over you. Paul says you have to hold on to your hope. It doesn't matter how they treat you, you continue to do good. It doesn't matter how they hurt you, you continue to do what's right. And when you continue to do good, when you continue to do what's right, it it's not going to matter who you are. It's not going to matter what job you have. God is going to repay you for that and you'll be able to experience tremendous blessing from Him. So if I've dedicated my life to Jesus, if I'm a Christian, if I'm an employee, if I'm going to go to work this week and, and I'm going to do a specific job, I have to look down this list and say, okay, how can I do better with these things? Which ones am I not so good at? Which ones do I need to do better at? Which one of these are, am I strong in? And which ones are weaknesses? I think that this, these principles that we're drawing out of this text is what God desires for work. Well, now let's, let's transition. Let's look at the other side of this relationship. Not Christian bondservants, but Christian masters. Paul addresses them, masters, in verse number 9. What does God desire for them? In that first century relationship, what did God desire for those who were masters? I think we see three ideas that we need to mention here. He says, first, masters do the same to them. Masters have the same attitudes that I just talked about with the bond, sir. I think in that statement, we see the golden rule. We see what Jesus teaches us on the Sermon on the Mount. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, what? 
do also to them. Isn't that what Paul is telling masters? However you want your bondservants to treat you, that's how you treat them. Have the same attitudes with them that you want them to have with you. If you want to be respected as a master, he says you give respect. If, if you want your servants to interact with you with a positive attitude, then you have a positive attitude. He says if you want your, if you want your servants to serve you with a good will and with a sincere heart, then you have a good will. You have a sincere heart. You have the same attitudes that you expect. You treat them the way that you want to be treated. And so there's some overlap here between the masters and the bondservants. And, and some, of these, some of these characteristics, they are to be reciprocal. Not just going one way, but going both ways. Number two, he says Christian masters are to have a refusal to threaten. Like we said just a minute ago, it wasn't uncommon for masters to threaten their slaves, beat their slaves, intimidate their slaves, treat their slaves very harshly. Paul says it's time to cut that out. A pagan master might live and be an authority in that way, but Christian masters are not to do that. You are, he says you are to have a refusal to threaten. If you're going to treat them the way that you want to be treated, if you're going to have the same attitudes towards them, then naturally this is going to be cut out. The, the masters wouldn't have wanted to be threatened or treated harshly. And so they are not to do that to their bondservants. And then the third thing that he says to Christian masters is that they are to have a recognition of the master who is in heaven. He says at the end of verse 9, he says, stop your threatening because you know this. This is not something you're ignorant of, that He who is both their Master and yours is in heaven. He says, you might be a Master on earth, but what you have to recognize is that you serve and you are accountable to a Master who is in heaven. Well, what do we need to recognize about that Master in heaven? Look at the end of verse 9. There is no partiality with Him. He says, think about God. There's no favoritism with God. God doesn't show favoritism based on external attitudes or external attributes. God doesn't show favoritism based on skin color. God doesn't show favoritism based on socioeconomic status. God doesn't show favoritism based on how a person dresses or how a person looks. So if the heavenly master doesn't do that, he says, you as earthly masters shouldn't either. You have to recognize your Master in heaven and you have to be like Him. If He doesn't show partiality, then you shouldn't either. It's like what Paul says in Galatians 3.28 that in Christ there's neither slave nor free. Now that's not doing away with their function. That's not saying that there's not going to be slaves and there's not going to be masters and there's not going to be people who are enslaved and people who are free. But what that is saying is that qualitatively, salvationally, in the eyes of God, both masters and bondservants stand on the same footing. They stand on the same level. In the eyes of God, qualitatively, one is not elevated over the other. And so he tells masters, treat your bondservants that way. Realize there's no difference between you and them in Christ. That He who is in heaven is both their master and yours. And there's no partiality with Him. That's what Paul has to say to Christian masters, again, asking the question, how can we invite this into our lives? 
How can we invite this into our society? Well, just like we talked about Christian employees, I think we can spend some time talking about Christian employers. If you're a Christian and you're an employer, what does God desire for you? How does God want you to interact with your employees? How does God want you to lead your business? Well, I think we can go back through these principles and find them particularly applicable, particularly relevant. He says Christian employers have the same attitudes that you want your employees to have. He says there shouldn't be this this double standard where the boss is treated like a king and the employees are treated terribly. There shouldn't be a double standard that exists there. Instead, if you want to be respected, you show respect. If you want them to treat you with goodwill, you treat them with goodwill. If you want them to have a positive attitude and sincere hearts, then you have a positive attitude. You have sincere hearts. Christian employers, how should you entreat your employees? Well, the golden rule is applicable in every situation, isn't it? Every relationship. Whatever you want others to do to you, You do also to them, Jesus says, because on that rests the law and the prophets. Number two, Christian employers are to have a refusal to threaten. Maybe sometimes it can be tempting to interact with your employees in a way that's harsh or in a way that's threatening. If you're going to treat them in the way that you want to be treated, that's going to be eliminated. That's not going to exist anymore. Now, now that's not saying to, to throw away that, that you're the boss and they're the employee, you're the employer. That, we're not throwing that out the window. But what we are saying is that you should not treat them in a harsh way, especially if you don't want to be treated in a harsh way. And then number three, as a Christian employer, you have to recognize that you have a master in heaven. A master in heaven, not just of you, but also those who are working for you. That He who is in heaven is both their Master and your Master. And there's no partiality with Him. You might be a boss on earth. You might be an employer on earth. But there's a boss in heaven that we're all going to stand before. A boss in heaven that we are all going to be accountable to. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. There's not partiality with Him. He doesn't show favoritism based on things that are external, socioeconomic status, race, how a person looks, what a person's skin color is. And as an employer, if that's the way our Master is in heaven, that's the way that we should be on earth. Christian employers, treat your employees the way that they want to be treated. Don't don't threaten them. Don't treat them in a way that is harsh and recognize that you have a master in heaven who both you and everybody around you is going to be responsible to. God's desire for working. I have to admit, it's a difficult text. And sometimes it can be really touchy. Perhaps we've just touched the hem of the garment. I know we've just touched the hem of the garment when it comes to slavery in the first century. But I think that we can look at this text and draw out some principles that are particularly applicable for Monday through Friday. For 9 to 5. For the jobs that we have, whether we're an employee or an employer. God's desire for working. I think ultimately what we see in this text is that, and I think this is what Paul wants both bond servants and masters, employees and employers to walk away with, God's desire for working. You can only be the worker that God wants you to be if you're the Christian that God wants you to be. 
Are you the employee that God wants you to be? Are you the employer that God wants you to be? Maybe you are, and and that's a good thing. That's an important question to answer. But an even more important question than that one is, are you the Christian that God wants you to be? Because it's going to be impossible for you to be the worker that God wants you to be unless you are the Christian, the follower, the disciple that God wants you to be. So maybe that part needs some work. Maybe you need us to pray for you tonight. Maybe you need to begin that journey in faith and obedience. We would love to help you in any way that we can as together we stand and sing.